association with the Museum of the Antiquities Project. This is Ancient Rome Refocused with your host. Rob Kane. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Episode 5 of Ancient Rome Refocused. If you talk about the Romans, you have to talk about the Greeks. Today we have an interview with Brian Dorries, the director of the Theater of War out of New York, and we have a little Sophocles for you. The podcast is titled... The 24th Shitkickers were never the same after the Peloponnesus. units have come out of the field into the outskirts of town. Through the streets you march, shield to shield, shoulder to shoulder. The streets are narrow and your spears occasionally catch laundry off the line as they dry in the sun, and they snag on a point, thus making a flag here and there in the column. A woman's garment is now the flag of the twenty-four shit-kickers, and the men around you laugh at the sight. Women lean out of their high windows and throw insults below. You need a bath, shouts a pretty thing. You smell, her mother adds. One of the soldiers shouts up to her window. I smell, so you know where I am when I come to your room tonight. The squad about him laughs and winks at the women suggestively. You have been in the field with your fellow soldiers all day, practicing the phalanx. Of course you smell. Your arms ache. Your shoulders ache. Your back shouts for relief, but the stratego said to the units and squads, there was a treat in store if you wait out the day. No, no, he said, if you finish the day, which meant the treat was for only those that survived the march after the phalanx pushing on the north field. What kind of treat? Demo shouts over the noise of the march. Wine, you shout. I hope it's wine. Your name is Archippos. That's the only treat I want, you shout. A woman, shouts your friend Demos, better than wine. Nothing is better than wine, someone shouts from the back of the ranks. In the tight streets, the column sometimes stops and starts like a centipede. The streets of Athens are busy, and soldiers are the last thing that the townspeople, shoutkeepers, and priests expect on this day. 
The men grow frustrated with the delays, for the day was long, and it is getting dark. Townspeople are simply pushed out of the way, carts overturned, as twenty great phalanxes move down the street. These men are tall, strong-armed, black-bearded, with depictions of frightening things upon their shields, such as gorgons, snakes, even a man's face with a tongue extended in insult. These are images, talismans, to strike fear and call upon the gods for protection against sword and shield. You know that you're getting close to your destination. When you hear music in the distance, your heart races thinking that this is a promised treat by the great Sophocles, your strategoi and priest to the gods. He said it would be worth the wait. You hold your tongue on that, for you'd rather be dancing and drinking the night away than sitting somewhere listening to another lecture. Sophocles, nicknamed affectionately the running goat, is always seen watching the troops from a hill. You and your friends, Demos, hears what sounds like echoing voices. You smile to each other, knowing that you have both arrived. The troops are packing to the great theater like fish in a barrel, but first, outside the great hall, clanging metal echoes as shield and spear are stacked. Inside the theater, voices echo off the walls. The theater is a half-circle. Seats lead downward towards the stage. It is then you notice the seating arrangements. Look, look! The devil-lickers are in the tenth row. How did those shield-carriers rate? You hated the devil-lickers since they caught Demos alone and stole his wine ration. It is rumored that they got the choice seats for coming in first during the squad march two weeks before. Inside, you notice the general sits in front. Behind them, each row is taken up by a tribe and fighting unit. Shield-carriers in front, archers, then slingers, and then pack-carriers had to stand in the aisles. Serves them right. Soldiers get to sit. Support troops stand. Everything is right with the world. What is this place? Demos asks. You look at your friend with surprise. What did you say? What is this place? He asks again, his bright eyes looking at the fine stage and great columns to the left and right. A theater, you country bumpkin. Have you never been to a play? Have you never seen actors? Your idiot friend frowns. I see a cow, and a thunderstorm on the plains, and a battle off the coast of Simos, but actors. Actors? What is going on, Chippo? He calls you Chippo, especially when he wants something or an extra piece of cheese out of your ration. Please, Chippo, give me a piece of cheese, he says. You sigh. You know that Demos has never been to a city, but what you didn't know and couldn't possibly have known that he had never been to the theater. Your friend is as ignorant as a fresh herring. Maybe the old goat wants to talk to us in one sitting, you say, hazarding a guess. And upon mentioning the great Sophocles, you see him on the stage, lit by torchlight in the setting sun. There is the old goat, says Demos. Sophocles stands at the front, talking to the other muckety-muck high-ass stratagoys. A page comes out, another pretty boy, and the soldiers start to whistle. Silence! For a boy, his voice is strong and carries to every seat. A few foul words slowly fade, and the boy looks at Sophocles and smiles. Here it comes, you say. Here comes what? Demos asks. The part, you explain, where we are all decommissioned and our rations are cut, or we have to watch another group of cadets dance their close-order drill for our approval. Is that so bad? asks Demos. 
It is when you want some wine and your feet have blisters on them as big as baby turtles. The old general, ugly as a sea devil, raises his head to the back row and says, Soldiers, I need you to listen. I need you to give me your attention. Can you do that? There's silence. I asked you a question, you donkey bots. Immediate laughter rings and echoes throughout the theater. When it quiets, the old general says, Oh, you are out there. I wondered for a moment. Your general asked you a question, and I did not get an answer. A soldier gets up from the front row. He is a line commander and a good one. He turns around and shouts from his seat. Soldiers, your general asked a question. He paused for a moment and then shouted at the top of his lungs. What is your answer? Immediately, a shout came back. It came up from the guts. The line commander had reached in and pulled it out of every belly that sat in the theater. Yes, Stratagoy, yes, we can. We fight for Athena on land and sand. For a moment in that theater, every ear rang. It was like the words still hung in the rafters, sitting there before disappearing into the sky. The line commander turned back around to Sophocles and says, I think they are listening, General. He said it almost sweetly. The old goat paces back and forth on stage, looking at the men seated, and then slowly begins to speak. You listen to orders upon the battlefield, he says. You wait for drums to tell you what to do. You wait for your officers and your line commanders to push and prod you into position. But good soldiers, proper soldiers, must know what to do in here, he says, pointing at his forehead. We are expecting a great battle, and sometimes the battle continues after the last arrow is shot or last sling is thrown. Sometimes the battle comes after the war and after the clash of arms. He was quiet for a moment. There was not a word, not a breath. In fact, men held their mouths shut and ceased to breathe so they could simply hear his words. At this moment, breathing is a distraction. The sound of air moving up and down your fat nose or in and out of your mouth prevent you from hearing his words, so you simply willed yourself not to breathe. The great man continues to speak. You think war is hard, my children. War is just the beginning of your journey. And I am your grandpa, old Sophocles the general, old Sophocles the goat, Sophocles the rotting goat. The men laugh long and hard. The theater echoes with their shouts of glee to know that the general knows the nickname for him. It's a joke. Such a good joke. Yes, I am the goat, but I am your goat. A rudding, ugly face, smelly old goat. But I know how to win and plan for wars. And being that you are my children, I must plan for you, even after the last sling is thrown and we have buried our brothers beneath the ground. There was silence. So listen, my Charybdis offspring. Listen, my multi-headed hydras. Listen to the words and let them stick to you like honey. Listen to those who speak upon the stage, for they are familiar. And with that, he stalks off the stage, leaving everyone perplexed. Small conversations pick up around the theater. What was that all about, Chippo? says Demos. I have no idea, you say. Athena, daughter of Zeus. Did you hear that? 
What was that? Who cries for the goddess? Demos whispers. Many in the theater become upset. Someone on the stage is evoking the name of Athena, the goddess. A voice shouts, Athena, daughter of Zeus. Below you are actors. A man and a woman stand upon the stage, at least what looks like a man and a woman. One of the actors wears a mask with a black beard. And the other wears a mask that looks like a woman with a painted crown upon her forehead. A woman, or what seems to be a woman, plays the part of Athena. She is behind a mask, a mask of a woman, and the actor wears a long shitan of gauzy white. Why am I never surprised, son of Laertes, to catch you stalking an enemy at daybreak like a bloodhound after some scent? Tracking footprints behind the tents where Ajax and his men hold down the battle line? You wish to know if he's inside dripping with sweat from the slaughter? Then tell me what you've come to do, and you may learn from one who knows. Dearest Athena, guardian goddess, though your shape evades my eyes, I hear you clearly in my mind like the tune of a song to which I somehow know the words. I'm circling in on an enemy, as you guessed, close on his heels. I have come for Ajax, the one we What call did she say, Chippos? Who is she speaking to, your friend asked. Odysseus, you answer. The real Odysseus? Oh, Demos, you're such a bumpkin. Odysseus is dead, you remind him. No, he isn't, Chippos. He stands there upon the stage. And the men who tended them hacked to pieces, butchered by a hand, his, we think, for one of our men swears to have seen him sprinting across the field with a wet sword. As soon as I heard, I was on the case, following the tracks which led me here. But I've been thrown by strange markings in the mud and cannot find him anywhere. You have arrived, as always, at the right moment to guide me with your hand. Obviously, Odysseus, I came to help with the hunt. Then I am on the right track. He is the one you describe, the killer of cows. Reckless gesture, but why did he do it? Black bile, blinding rage over the arms of Achilles. What drove him to attack the animals? In his mind, their blood was yours. Wished to kill the Greeks? Affirmative. He would have completed his mission, too, had I not been paying attention. Where did he find the courage to do it? He stopped too quietly in the night. And how close did he come to his target? Close enough to strike the generals. And what contained his bloodlust? I did. I robbed him of the pleasure of cutting you to pieces, raining on his death parade, distracting him with visions of bovine foes grazing in the fields under the watchful eyes of simple herdsmen. He descended upon them with full fury, ripping out horns with his hands, slitting throats and snapping spines, at one point squeezing the life from a general, then taking the lives of other officers, or so he thought, trembling with contamination. I stoked his rage, driving him deeper into the snare. Finally tired from all the killing, he bound and gagged his sad prisoners, those pitiful few cows and sheep somehow still standing, and rounded them up for the death march back to his camp, convinced they were men. He tortures them inside the tent. And now I will expose you to his illness so you may see with your own eyes and live to tell the story. Stand there like a man. He won't hurt you as long as I am here. Don't worry, I will hide you in his blind spot. He won't see you in the shadows. You there in the tent, stretching prisoners on the rack, put down your ropes. Report to me immediately. What are you doing? Lower your voice. Watch what you say. Someone might call you a coward. Please, Athena, by the gods, let him stay inside the tent. He's only a man, not to be feared the same as before. He was and is my enemy. Well, isn't it satisfying to laugh at an enemy? It would please me more if we stayed within. Are you afraid it gave Who calls for Ajax? Demos the Claude asks. Athena calls for Ajax. I'll shave his eyes. 
Ajax the hero here, Demos the dolt asks. Not the real Ajax, you explain. You and your friends listen carefully. The play speaks of the hero Ajax and the pain and humiliation that he feels. He tried to win the armor of Achilles, his friend, and lost it in a contest to Odysseus. The goddess explains that Ajax intended to kill his generals, to slit their throats while they slept. This was his intended revenge for the humiliation of losing the armor of Achilles, of unable to gain it in contest the armor of his friend. There is a visible disturbance in the seats. Men move back and forth uncomfortably. They know the price of attempting to kill an officer. They dare not take their eyes off the stage. What is the Stratagoy trying to tell us, you wonder? What is the purpose? This play, these words, speak of gods. As the night progresses, Ajax's madness becomes more and more pronounced. Soon the hero of Troy, Ajax the shield, is on a beach. The actor's words tell you he has placed his sword in the sand, blade up, blade up, blade up. That can mean only one thing, one thing only. He's going to die. Some men in the audience yell out, No, 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 great Ajax! Men get on their feet. Others put out their hands as if they can will the hero from carrying out the act. Before anyone can reach the stage, the hero has thrown himself on the sword. His shout of pain fills the theater. Men stand. Some advert their eyes. Some cannot help but to stare at Ajax in his throes of death as he withers upon the stage. Strange how an imaginary sword has caused such unbelievable pain through the hall. The play continues. The widow of Ajax, the battle-born bride, men in the audience have such women, discover the body and screams out in her pain. What was that sound coming from the trees? Wretched, I am wretched. I see the battle one bride overcome with grief. It's over, friends, everything. Others discover the body, his son, his servants, the great Agamemnon. The king is angry. He knows that Ajax stood over his bed and was about to kill him in his madness. It was not for the intervention of Athena. He wants the body to rot. He wants the body to be carrion, to be food for birds. The soldiers in the audience pull their hair and wring their hands. A single word is whispered up and down the aisles. No! 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 Soon, Odysseus, enemy to Ajax, pleads with King Agamemnon to allow Ajax to be buried. He gives advice to the king, and though Ajax wished his death, and though Ajax was his enemy, he makes the case for the hero of Troy to be honored. Lord Odysseus, you have come just in time if you are here to loosen this knot. What is it, man from far away? I thought I heard the sons of Atreus shouting over this brave man's corpse. And from close up, Lord Odysseus, we have been made to endure this insolent man's loud insults. What did he say? I can empathize with the man when he reacts to harsh words with a sharp tongue. He heard harsh words because of his behavior. Yeah, but what did he do to provoke your anger? And what did he... Ah, uh, he refused to allow this corpse to remain unburied, but plans to violate my orders and bury it anyway. Sir, will you accept advice from a friend? Of course. You 
my chief advisor and greatest friend among the Greeks. And hear me out as a friend. Do not cast out this corpse or leave this man's body to the birds, for in your rage you will commit a violation of justice. I say this as someone who was once the greatest enemy of this man after being awarded the arms of Achilles, but in spite of his wish to do me harm, I would not dishonor him in his death by denying that he was the bravest warrior among the Greeks who came to Troy second to Achilles. And so it would not be right to strip him of all honors now that he is dead, as you wouldn't be dishonoring him, but the divine laws that forbid us from mistreating a noble man after his death, even if you hated him when he was alive. Odysseus. The play is over. The men are exhausted, but not from their day maneuvers, not from the weight of the spears, but from what they have witnessed. It was too much, too many thoughts, too many ideas bounced around their heads. What was the old gold trying to tell them? This play will enter their dreams, and will play with their minds for days. The stage went dark, and the actors left. Back to the barracks, shouted the line commander from the aisles. Somehow, the voices in the theater are not as loud as they were coming in. The men look thoughtful. You and your friend Demos get in line and slowly file out into the night air. To some, the play means nothing. A momentary distraction from the day's drills. Some of the hoplites look thoughtful and keep whatever they are thinking to themselves. They bite their lips and look to the stars for answers. You, on the other hand, want that cup of wine and you're still pissed at the Stratagoy for keeping you from it. High-minded muckety-mucks, I hope they stand in their donkey shit. I need a cup of wine, I need it now. You are the only one that grumbles from your squad. The others say nothing but walk back to the barracks in the cool night air. You can hear the crickets singing in the air. Silence hangs over the, the 24th shit-kickers. Even Demo says nothing. What did that old goat think we could possibly have learned from that, you say? Demos, the country bumpkin, has been quiet all this time. He was quiet while coming down the aisle stairs. He was quiet while walking through the dark streets towards the Olympian field where the barracks sit. You look at your friend with amusement. What holds your tongue, Demos, you ask? What did you learn from that public display of actor scum? Demos says one word and one word only. Honor. I'm visiting Washington, D.C. I'm told that Sophocles is in town. He is at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences on the same ground as the famous Bethesda Naval Hospital. He's behind a gate guarded by Marines. Well, not the real Sophocles, but his play, his words, have wound up here close to Washington, D.C. The question is, what does Sophocles have to do with a bunch of doctors and psychologists who have gathered here in this medical theater? Well, we have been invited to the reading of the Sophocles play titled Ajax. It is a work day, and many of the audience have left their jobs and offices to take an hour or two to listen. A reading is where actors sit at a table and say the words from the scripts that lay in front of them. This is a cheap way to put on a show. No costumes, no staging. In the audience are doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, from the university and probably from Bethesda Naval Hospital. 
There are many different types of uniforms, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, and in the audience are wounded veterans, men and women without arms, legs, and service members who have experienced battle firsthand. They have scars. They're just scars that cannot be seen. This theater is wood-paneled and it has approximately 300 seats and has hosted more lectures on medicine and more words on symptom treatment and result than the words that are about to be spoken here today. They will talk of ancient heroes, the will of the gods, and the state of man. What is happening is unique. In front of me is a table with four or five seats and the actors are warming up for the performance to come. They seem familiar. They should be. From left to right, Omari Cheatham, Broadway and off-Broadway actor, starred in the play called Book of Grace, many other stage roles, and recently graduated from the prestigious Juilliard School of Acting. Chad Coleman, star of many films and television series, recently shot The Green Hornet, which will be out in December. Karen Young, from the series The Sopranos, played a female FBI agent. She was recently in a Sam Shepard play called Live of the Mind. And finally, we have Reed Burney, New York City actor, recently in a play called Blasted, a very respected TV and stage actor. Chad Coleman, you may recognize from the HBO hit TV show, The Wire. Upon entering the theater, I uh, caught him uh, testing his voice. Uh, He kept on shouting out, Athena, daughter of Zeus, looking up at the rafters, sending his voice out like a ballista sending out a rock against a fortress wall. He has a powerful voice, a powerful presence. In the reading today, he plays two parts, Ajax and King Agamemnon. In readings, actors usually double up on the roles. Karen Young plays Athena and Ajax's wife, Tecmessa. I caught Mr. Coleman after the show. The words that you're speaking, though, are older than me, older than this country, older mm-hmm. than many nations that exist in Earth. Mm-hmm. What does it feel like to speak the words that have come over thousands of years? And they seem like something that could have been written yesterday. Right. It's a testament to the human experience. The human experience defies time, you know? There's buildings, there's geography, there's, you know, the clothes we wear and all of that. That's more identifiable with time than human behavior. Human behavior transcends time. So the same, obviously the same things they experienced then we are absolutely experiencing now, which is what makes Sophocles so brilliant. Can you write, can you get to the epicenter, to the core of human behavior? Because if you can, it's going to be relatable And then there is the director. Mr. Dorries is a New York-based writer, translator, director, and educator. He is the founder of a theatrical organization called Theater of War, a project that presents readings of ancient Greek plays to service members. In addition to his work in the theater, Brian serves as an advisor for the Nonprofit Alliance for Young Artists and Writers. He lectures on his work at colleges and universities. Over the last couple of years, Mr. Doris has directed film and stage actors in readings of his translations. Sure. My name is Brian Doris. I'm the founder of Theater of War, and um, I started the project in 2008. 
Did I hear you correctly? Did you say that you translated yeah. it? Yes, I translated the play, uh, Ajax. It was performed today. Our other play, Philoctetes. I actually, my background is in classics, in Greek and Latin. And I came to theater through classics because I had a love for ancient plays. And then I came to directing through my desire to make those plays come alive. And I came to the military because I wanted to find an audience for those ancient plays. What, what made you decide to translate it yourself as opposed to relying on somebody else's oh. translation? Um, there are thousands of translations of every Greek play that exists in every possible language in the Western world. Um, unfortunately, most of them sound like they were written in the 19th century. Um, I'm interested in creating a translation that speaks to the moment, to now, and engages people with idioms that they can relate to. Um, that's not uh, in any slight to the original text. Um, we are always reinventing the Greeks. The Italians did it in the Renaissance. We did it, our founding fathers did it as they built neoclassical architecture throughout this country. And our democracy did it, our aesthetics have done it in this country. We've appropriated many things, but always with our American perspective. Um, this is a new American translation of these ancient Greek plays. When I was listening to it, and I was listening to Ajax's wife, she turned to her husband and she said a word that seemed very military to me. She said, affirmative. Hmm. Now, I, I, I'm having a hard time understanding the choice of that word. I, I, sure. I can't believe that was in Greek, in Greek language, but uh, was that chosen or was that actually a word? It actually wasn't Ajax's wife. It was Athena, who is oh, the head right. of all... She's the, she's the goddess of war. She's the highest-ranking officers of all officers in all armies. And so for her to say affirmative as a, as a word choice is actually quite natural. She's the highest-ranking person in the entire Greek army. Um, and Odysseus, she says affirmative and many other words in the, in the scene to continue to reinforce for Odysseus, who is a high-ranking officer in the Greek army, that she's in charge. Um, I'll also say this. Um, you know, let's not get hang, hung up on what ancient Greek words would sound like in English because there's no way to do that. A translation is a text alongside another text. There's no alchemical process by which you distill an ancient word into a modern word. Um, there is no original into English. That doesn't exist. And uh, unfortunately, I think uh, many people um, you know, uh, are not aware of the role of the translator in making tra texts vital. These are performed texts. The only way for them to work is for them to sound natural and spoken and clear for coming out of actors' mouths in front of audiences. They're not to be read. They're to be heard. And so that's the aim that I had in mind as a translator, writing think, affirmative. Well, I think the one thing that I have, I think I read a yeah. book, uh, The Last Days of Pompeii, which sure. sounded very much 18th century mm -hmm. and such, and I, I see what you're trying to yeah, do. Yeah, I mean, the Greek lexicon, the, the, the dictionary from which most classicists work, was codified in the 19th century. So all the translations of what Greek words sound like and what the idioms sound like sound Victorian. Well, that's because... That's when the, the dictionary was written. But the Greeks sounded no more Victorian um, than um, the uh, uh, characters in the uh, Hebrew Bible. Um, but that's a, that's a choice. Uh, and we can choose to make them sound like us because in their own time, they sounded like them. Let's see. Uh, in, in taking this performance around to different places and everything, what has it given you in terms? Oh, man, it has been a dream come true. To do something that is meaningful uh, in the theater for an audience that responds the way you heard the audience this morning respond, emotionally, presently, 
as if the plays were written for them. Um, there's no greater gift as an artist than to be given an opportunity to do that. And I think that's why so many great actors have joined me on this journey. I have about 50 actors. 50 actors have joined me to perform these plays over the last year and a half. And many of them are well-known actors who are giving their time to do it. Um, it's a rare opportunity to be able to get, do something with your craft that is helpful to others. And you can see a meaningful difference being made through it. Um, and also what it gives to me. Well, uh, you know, every week I go up against several hundred um, military service members uh, in, in dialogue and conversation. I try to facilitate conversations, and it's everywhere from the Department of Defense to Army bases to... Um, the School of Infantry at Camp Pendleton. And I've done more than 60 of them. And I've gotten really comfortable figuring out what things need to be said or not said in order to get an audience talking and um, about difficult subject matter. And I feel like it's been a kind of a Jedi night training. I mean, something that you can't acquire unless you do it 65 times or 100 times, unless you step out and take the risk of people not talking and you try to figure out how to get them to talk. And so for me, I've just grown so much as a human being, as a facilitator uh, over these last two years doing this work. Just one more question. Yeah. In, in looking at these ancient texts, do you think people really change? I think there are elements of the human experience that have not changed for thousands of years and probably will not change. And I think what theater of war points to is the universality of the human experience of war across cultures, across time. If we had one message, uh, it's not a negative message that we're hit repeating history. It's a positive message, which is you are not alone in this room, you are not alone across the country, and you are not alone across time. I had a veteran come up to me after one of our performances and say, Brian, that PTSD is from BC, makes me feel less alone in the world. It's precisely that we can relate to ancient stories and see our own experiences reflected in an ancient narrative and know that others who have come before us have struggled with the same things we're feeling that allows us to know that we are not the only ones who've had these experiences. And that's really the aim of Theater of War. Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, thanks for coming. I have cast Mr. Dorries in the role of an explorer, and he is one. Some people discover continents, some ancient artifacts, and some find meaning to things that have been lost. Being an explorer can mean finding new meaning to something old. The following are excerpts from the play Ajax, by Sophocles. The words very much belong to the ancient playwright, but Mr. Brian Dorries has something to do with it as well. As translator, he opens up the door to the modern age and lets the ancient playwright step through. He introduces the words to modern times, and hopefully something is pricked in the memory of the listener. And it doesn't matter if you're living back then or living now. You feel something. It brings forth a memory. It seems familiar. Athena speaks to Odysseus 
and calls Ajax from his tent. Stand there silently. Do not move. I must remain against my wishes. Ajax, I call you for a second time. Please don't make the third. I thought we were friends. Athena, daughter of Zeus, you stood beside me as I worked last night. I will not soon forget your loyalty and will honor you with gold. I love the offer. Thank you, sir. Now tell me how you spared your sword. I hate to brag, but the bragging rights are mine. And did your weapon touch sons of They will never disgrace my name again. Then they are dead, I understand you. Let's see them steal my arms now! Tecmessa speaks. All of you saw that the earth and sailors who serve Ajax, those of us who care for the house of Telamon, will soon wail, for our fierce heroes sent shell shock to his tent, glazed over, gazing into oblivion. He has a thousand yards spare. What terrors visited him in the night to reverse his fortune by war? Ajax calls to his comrades. You sailors! You loyal friends! You stood by me through the worst of times. Do you see this wave of destruction, full of chum and guts, crashing on all sides? Sadly, you were right. He has come unhinged. You skilled sailors! Join me on the open seas to row against our enemies. You are the only men who can help me now. Cut my throat right here, right now. Add me to this pile. End my suffering. Do not say these things. We will not cure evil with evil. For if we try, the pain will only grow worse than the others that brought it upon you. Do you see what I have done? I was the bravest in battle. Never lost my wits. And now I kill these harmless barnyard animals with my hands. What a joke my life has become. My reputation. My sense of honor. Will you not leave me alone? Will you not go? Ah! On my knees, please relent. Use your head. I was the one who let his enemies slip away and turned upon bulls and white goats to shed black blood in the night. What is done is done, sir. There's no changing the past. You slick trickster. You cowardly fox double-crossing. Arrogant Odysseus. I can hear your loud laughter rattling in my soul. Ajax is warned of the dangerous direction he is going. Swallow your proud words, sir. Don't you see the quicksand in which we now stand? If Achilles still lived and decided to hold a contest for his arms, awarding them to the greatest warrior, at the end of the day they would be mine. Tecmessa pleads with her husband.
Ajax, scene three. So for scene four, here's all you need to know. A messenger comes to Tecmessa's tent and says, please come out, woman. And so Tecmessa comes out and says, what is it, sir? And he says, an oracle has foretold that if your husband leaves his tent, he will surely die this day. And Tecmessa, in a fury, sends all of the soldiers out, fanning across the sea, looking for uh, Ajax to perhaps stop him from harming himself. But unfortunately, they arrive too late. And Tecmessa is the one who finds Ajax's body freshly impaled upon his sword on the salt marshes by the sea. sound coming from the trees. Wretched, I am wretched. I see the battle-worn bride overcome with grief. It's over, friends. Everything is lost. What is it? Ajax, freshly impaled on his sword. There will be no more hope of homecoming. He has killed us with his death. We'll be dead upon arrival, coming back in body bags. Oh. He has died, we must weep. By whose hand did he go down? By his own. Look at how the sword juts out of the earth. How could I have been so blind, so deaf to your cries as the red blood gushed from a hole in your chest? Where is he? Where is unbending Ajax, whose name is now a sad, sad soul? He is not to be seen. I will cover his body with this white cloth, for no one who loved him could bear to see the black blood drip from his nostrils and the deep self-inflicted wound and gaping hole in the center of his chest. What am I to do now? Which of you will lift him? Where is Tusser? He should be here now to help prepare the body for a proper burial. We don't have much time. Oh, Ajax, this was no way for you to die, not for you. Even your enemies will weep when they see you. The man of many turns now mocks our suffering. He's laughing at us, along with the generals. Let him laugh. Let them all laugh. They won't laugh for long when they lack his shield in combat. Evil men only appreciate good men like Ajax after they're gone. Tusser, the great archer, discovers his half-brother's body. Dearest Ajax, whose blood courses through my veins, what have you done? Tell me the rumor isn't true. Know this, Tusser, the man is dead. So this is my fate. It's our fate. I'm wretched, wretched. We groan with you. My heart is broken. Our hearts are broken, too. But what about his boy, his son? Where is he now? Alone by the camp. Get him right now. Bring him here, or an enemy will snatch him up like a lion club cup ripped from its mother's den. Go! Don't delay another second. Men get off on kicking corpses. Well done, Tusser. His final orders were for you to look after his family. No other road has wounded me as deeply as this one. What began as a search and rescue mission ended in a funeral possession. The story of your death shot quickly through the camps, reaching my ears before I had reached your body. When I heard the news, I doubled over, sick to my stomach, holding in the black vial welling within me. But now that I see what you have done, I can't hold it in any longer. Uncover him! Let me see it all! Ah! Look at that face! His face says everything! The suffering, the bitterness, the courage, the misery. Oh, what terrors await me now that you're dead. Where can I show my face among what men when I was not where I should have been when you needed me the most? Our father, Telamon, will no doubt greet me with open arms when I return home without you. Of course, the man never let on when he was pleased, even when luck fell in his favor. Far be it from him to show his emotions. 
But in the silence of your absence, when it finally all sinks in, what vile words will not cross his lips as he slings them in my direction? King Menelaus orders that Ajax's body not be buried and tries to justify his actions. Who was this man who, whom you defend with proud words? What was he made of? Where did he stand in battle where I did not stand beside him? Was he the only warrior in the army? Oh, it was a dark day when we announced the competition for Achilles' arm. For it was the day when Tusa decided, once and for all, that we were evil, corrupt to the core, and that he would never accept our judges' decisions or concede defeat. Instead, after losing, like all of the others, you sneak up from behind the lines to pelt us with insults and stab us in the back. The rule of law will fall apart if we subvert our judges' decisions, making winners losers and losers winners to appease the bitter anger of those who lost. No, this must be stopped. In the end, a quick mind always trumps a broad chest. Show some intelligence, Tucer. Know your place. Tucer, the archer, shoots back his answer and hits the target. Right after a man dies, gratitude instantly evaporates into a cloud of betrayal. How many times did he put his life on the line for you, shielding you from enemy attacks? All gone. No more memory of Ajax cast out with his corpse. Do you actually not recall when you were pinned against a wall by enemy fire, your forces reduced to nearly nothing, and as the flames spread from ship to ship, mighty Hector leapt over the hulls and onto your deck, with every intention of taking you down. Tell me, who saved you that day? Was it some base criminal? And who faced Hector head on and hand to hand on his own free will after drawing lots? Clearly you don't remember how he cast the heaviest coin into the pot so as to ensure that he would be the one to fight. That's just the kind of man he was. We have come to the last part where Odysseus uh, comes upon the stage. You heard it earlier in the program, where he pleads with King Agamemnon to provide the burial honors to Ajax, who so richly deserves them for the brave deeds that he did in life. Mr. Dorries plays the part of Odysseus, and he plays the part of the narrator. You know, it seems a fitting combination to me. The narrator of any play is all-knowing, and Odysseus was the great schemer, the spy, the manipulator of events. Odysseus, here's all you need to know. Well, come on, uh, it's not all you need to know. I mean, we are talking about the king of Ithaca. Husband of Penelope, father of Timalchus, and the fellow who thought up the Trojan horse to defeat the Trojans. If any character in mythology you want to read up on, this is the guy. I mean, after all, Odysseus was smart. When the Archean ships reached the Trojan shore, there was a hesitation to be the first one to depart the ships. This is because an oracle declared that the first person to set foot on the beach of Troy would be the first to die. It was Odysseus that hit the beach first. Except, when he jumped from the ship... He had first thrown his shield down upon the sand, so that it acted as a platform. It was the second person to jump from the ship that died, 
Odysseus, after all, was the smartest guy in the room and was always true to his reputation and one step ahead of the fates. Always thinking that, Odysseus. And being that Mr. Dorries is the director and translator, Odysseus seems the perfect role for him. He sometimes looks at the script and sometimes not. What amazes me is that in a reading, you expect the actors to read the words from the page, but sometimes he seems to know the words by heart. He seems to have memorized most of the words and only uses the script occasionally, and I suppose he knows the words intimately, as being the translator he would. From the Greek to the English, the words would have been imprinted on his brain. As director, as translator, and host of this event, he introduced each scene with a clipped introduction that goes something like this. Scene four, here's all you need to know. And he tells the audience who's in the scene, their history and purpose, like a modern announcer that says, on the last episode, I shall borrow this phrase, I shall steal his line to provide background and information. As you may have noticed, I already have. In doing this, I can only ask his forgiveness. And now for some background information. Who is Sophocles? Here's all you need to know. Well, it's always good to know more, so if you get a chance, read about him. Sophocles was born in 495 BC. He was the son of a rich merchant, and he grew up studying the arts. In an annual festival, he entered his first play and won first place at the theater Dionysus. 120 more plays were to follow, and in addition to his theatrical duties, he also served as a general and a priest. He wrote about gods and heroes and had a deeply religious view of the arts, reportedly saying that he was only the interpreter of the heroes and divinities who are looking down on him. When we started Theater at War uh, several years ago, the notion was that um, we first got our, our start in medical school, actually, in uh, New York City at Cornell Weill College of Medicine. And um, we were invited by a doctor who came to a performance we did in downtown in an off-Broadway theater of this play Philoctetes, written by Sophocles 2,500 years ago. And the doctor came up to me and said, Brian, I think this play would have a lot to say to medical professionals. Um, would you like to bring it to a hospital? And I said, sure, absolutely, I'd love that. And we took it to Walt, uh, to, um, to uh, uh, Cornell, and we performed for medical students and faculty. And all of a sudden, even though I translated the play from ancient Greek, the uh, audience was saying things that I couldn't possibly have intuited or known about the play. And it was like a veil was lifted on a play that I thought I knew you know, very intimately. And uh, that, that changed everything for me as an artist. I stopped asking how do we perform these plays, and I started asking the question, for whom are these stories meant to be told? Uh, for far too long, these stories have been the uh, possession of the elite few who study them in liberal arts, uh, you know, ivory tower uh, programs uh, across the country, and that's a very small portion of our population. But it's my belief that those who live lives of mythological proportions, i.e., when the stakes are very high and life and death decisions and big ethical decisions are facing them every day, those who live lives in mythological proportions have no trouble relating to ancient myths. And I've learned that. I've learned that from audiences in the Department of Defense, and I've learned that from homeless veterans who live at the Borden Avenue Veterans Residence in Long Island City, Vietnam-era veterans who had some of the most insightful things to say about Greek tragedy that I've ever heard in my entire life. And over the last year and a half, Thanks to some of our friends here at UCIS, uh, Colonel uh, Chuck Engel, uh, General uh, Laurie Sutton, 
and many others who've gotten behind this project, we've had the privilege of now delivering more than 65 performances of Theater of War for military audiences across the country, and now under a contract, we're doing 100 this year and hopefully 100 next year. We just came from Fort Eustis, where we delivered four performances. Next week, we're in Hawaii, and two weeks later, we're in Germany for a 20-day tour of all the bases there and the Army bases. And i got to tell you, it's been a life-changing experience for us. I'm giving you a little more background on the project because we want to talk to you the normal way we do this, um, this program, but I also want to let you know that with this program, we're learning so much about the communities we're visiting. We're learning a lot about the issues that the plays raise. Uh, we, we're, our real goal is to create the, com the conditions for a conversation that would not otherwise be possible. Certainly, as civilians, we couldn't walk into uh, a military community and say we'd like to have a town hall meeting about PTSD or suicide. That, that, would, that would hardly uh, uh, play well. Um, you'd probably hear a pin drop uh, if we tried to do that. But by performing these ancient plays and allowing people to see their own lives and their own struggles reflected in an ancient narrative, people are disinhibited and they uh, share their stories. And the first time we did this was for uh, Marines in 2008, and we scheduled a 45 minute discussion after the performance in a Hyatt Ballroom at the COSC conference in San Diego. And, uh, and then all of a sudden we had a three and a half hour discussion on our hands with you know, 20, 30, 40 people lining up to the microphone, all quoting lines from the plays. And we realized we had stumbled across a very powerful, very ancient form and perhaps maybe the form, the, the actual roots of the form itself. So here's the idea behind Theater of War. Theater of War is based on an idea that uh, Jonathan Shea, whom you may know about uh, in his book Achilles in Vietnam, has made more popular, although classicists before him uh, made this point, that ancient Greek drama was a form of storytelling, of ritual purification, of communalization, of reintegration for veterans by veterans. And here are the stats. The time the plays were written in the century, the fifth century BC uh, in Athens, Athens uh, over that century saw 80 years of war. At the time these plays were at their peak, when Aeschylus wrote his famous Oresteia trilogy, Athens was at war on six fronts. Um, the theater of Dionysus itself sat 17,000 citizen soldiers who watched these plays, written by a general officer named Sophocles. And Sophocles did not become a general by writing nice plays. Uh, he became a general by being a great warrior. He wrote plays for his populace, knowing something about the things that they had gone through. And um, the theater of Dionysus was constructed in such a way where the general sat in the front, and we think that the audience was comprised by a tribe, which was a military uh, unit, and by rank. And that even, uh, there's a theory that Greek drama was a form of training, or, or maybe even inoculation, although I know that's a controversial word, for cadets or hoplite soldiers who were matriculated into the army. And the very place where hoplite soldiers joined the army and were able to matriculate was by demonstrating their close order drill formations at the very theater of Dionysus where the plays were performed. This was a theater of war. Uh, theater comes from a Greek word that means seeing place, a place where you go to see. And um, I, I, now that we've done this 65 times, it's become clear to me that these plays especially which deal explicitly with topics that only those who served or those who provided for those who served or cared for those who served could possibly understand was a way of looking objectively at war and seeing its impact on the human being and maybe collectively acknowledging it, even if just tacitly by sitting shoulder to shoulder with those who've been through it. And so that's, our, that's the notion. And, and we took that notion and we brought it out into the world. And everywhere we go, we've learned something 
do, whether it's from the Navy SEALs or from homeless veterans or from the Army bases we've been to, from the Department of Defense or at UCIS. And we're delighted to be here today and we'll hope to learn, hope to learn more about what these ancient plays are really about. Here's a little more background information. You may have noticed that in the play, uh, Athena is always mentioned. I mean, she also appeared at the beginning of the play and appeared in the mind's eye of Odysseus. I mean, who was this goddess? Well, I'll give you a little background information, and Mr. Dorries will uh, tell you something about Ajax. Here's all you need to know. Well, this is everything you need to know about Athena. There is a wealth of mythology waiting for you, so read about her. But the essentials are this. Athena is the god of wisdom, war, the arts, industry, justice, and skill. It was she that founded the city of Athens by presenting the city with the olive tree, which provides food, oil, and wood to man. Surely this gift proves her wisdom. In considering she was born fully grown from the head of Zeus, should tell you what she represents. Ajax, while not the greatest Greek warrior in the Greek estimation, he was the strongest Greek warrior. He was a warrior who won through courage, through commitment, through honor, through doing the right thing, through putting his life on the line whenever he could. The Greeks called Ajax the shield because he shielded them from the worst of attacks. And the unit was called the shield. Um, they were always in the most forward locations, taking the greatest losses. And over those nine long years, Ajax lost more men uh, more of his troops than any other leader in the Greek army. He was also a great friend of, Aja of Achilles, and if you Google this later, you can see vase painting pictures of Ajax carrying the body of Achilles over his shoulder mournfully off the battlefield after losing his friend uh, in combat. So for all these reasons, because he was great friends with Achilles, because he'd sacrificed more than any other warrior in the Greek army and lost more men, because he put his life on the line, because he was the shield, Ajax believed that he deserved to receive the armor of Achilles after he died. And in the ancient world, to receive the armor of someone honorable was the greatest honor. It was the medal of honor. And Ajax and all of his friends and colleagues in the Greek army believed he deserved this great honor, this great achievement. But unfortunately, as these things sometimes go, both in the ancient and in the modern world, the process by which this award was given out got political. In that time, Having the armor of an enemy or of a best friend was a pretty important status symbol. Well, think about it. The most expensive thing a soldier owned was his horse and the armor on his back. I can imagine the cost, and the beauty of the armor varied according to the pocketbook of the wearer, and even then depended on the bravery of the soldier, and Achilles was the best. Many at that time could see it imbued with the spirit of the individual who had died, whether it was an enemy or a friend. Even today, many still believe that objects have qualities of the owner, superstition, I admit, but still something people believe today, whether consciously or subconsciously. Okay. It was just his best friend's armor, but, and it's a big but, when you share danger with a friend, share the hardships of war, that bond is stronger than anything you can imagine. It can be stronger than some family ties. Yes, what Ajax wanted to do was wrong, and if it was not for the intervention of Athena in driving his madness from the killing of the officers to the destruction of the animals... The pain and suffering would have been far worse. But even his insanity and Athena's intervention is what pushed events forward. 
His officers now considered him an enemy and sent Odysseus to destroy him. But after his suicide, it is a strange turn of events that make his enemy Odysseus his friend as well by assisting and persuading the Archean king to allow a religious and decent burial for Ajax. Do you accept advice from a friend? Of course. You are my chief advisor and greatest friend among the Greeks. Then hear me out as a friend. Do not cast out this corpse or leave this man's body to the birds, for in your rage you will commit a violation of justice. I say this as someone who was once the greatest enemy of this man after being awarded the arms of Achilles, but in spite of his wish to do me harm, I would not dishonor him in his death by denying that he was the bravest warrior among the Greeks who came to Troy, second to Achilles. And so it would not be right to strip him of all honors now that he is dead, as you wouldn't be dishonoring him. But the divine laws that forbid us from mistreating a noble man after his death, even if you hated him when he was alive. This is. That's all you need to know. No, that is not all you need to know. You need to know more. One thing you should do is go see the play in its entirety. But now, here at the university, the reading is over. But the audience remains. This is not just a performance, a place for actors to take bows and be on their way. This is a dissection. This is an autopsy, if I may use medical terminology, to, to describe what is going to take place next. The director has invited members of the audience to come on stage. These are people that have dealt with loss, who understand it at the most basic level, at gut level. As Mr. Dorries puts it, they are being used to respond from their experiences. The actors leave the stage, and members of the audience come to take their place. From right to left, a woman whose husband suffered a terrible wound. I think most people notice his physical injuries. Ted suffered a, a severe traumatic brain injury and an amputation, among other things. Um, and somehow in all of that, what gets ignored is post-traumatic stress disorder and what the consequences were of that. Um, I think one of the things that I really identified with was uh, Tecmessa's struggle with her husband. Um, about a year after my husband was injured, the, the first year was a really rough one for him. Um, I think much like Ajax, he couldn't ever accept what happened and moved on. Um, and then eventually drove him mad. Um, about a year after Ted was injured, suffered a psychotic break. And when I was watching, I could feel her helplessness. Um, trying to rationalize with someone who wasn't rational, um, I think, but also knowing in your heart of hearts that this can't end um, any way that's good. And having to sit back and watch as someone cascades into this downward spiral and knowing that there's nothing you can do to help that person that you love. Um, I think also um, what really stood out to me was that Ajax was completely hopeless. That he, he couldn't um, and his conversations with Tecmasa, that he was just so completely negative. He was defeated. He was hopeless. Um, and I really could feel for her as she was talking to him. And he was just in this, uh, you know, state where he thought his life had become 
a joke. Um, I still find myself in that situation sometimes. Um, that people don't necessarily see an aftermath like this as a consequence of war. Um, and that also the soldier themselves sometimes forgets all the good things they did, all the things that they should be proud of. And somehow or other, the fact that they're human and they're broken by some of the horrible things that they've experienced, that somehow or other that taints everything they've accomplished before that, like it never happened. A Navy chaplain who went to Iraq and saw laws. A colonel has little patience for those who criticize the dead. Like our first panelist, I've, I've found it, uh, some newfound respect for Odysseus. I've never liked the IG, uh, personally. Uh, and I think their role in our military sometimes is to uh, assign blame when, when blame may not need to be assigned. Uh, but I think, it, I think it's a challenge. And, and we see here that Odysseus is trying to strike a balance um, you know, just something's horrible has happened. Uh, we're not exactly sure uh, uh, um, who should be blamed, but we, we got to at least honor uh, the process uh, and, and what was once great. And, and I, I, um, I, I feel for his struggle too. I would hate to be the folks whose job it is to try to figure out uh, whose fault something horrible is uh, in, a, in a situation like this. An army officer remembers the best of his comrades. with 
uh, food, fuel, etc. And out of that company, there were six, six females and one officer. Trace was the officer. And so we had 800 people, and she's the only female officer out of, out of that 800. And uh, she, was, she was a phenomenal officer. She was, uh, our battalion commander took us out on surprise 50-mile road march with body armor, uh, weighed down with overall 60 pounds worth of stuff. Uh, didn't tell us how, how far we were going. At the end of this, uh, he said for a mile or two, at the this 15 miles, um, only one-third of the 60 officers were there. And Tracy was at the head of the pack. I mean, we're talking, you know, full, like, infantrymen uh, that, had, that had gone to ranger school, not being able to complete this. Tracy was, Tracy was phenomenal, though. Um, our battalion commander, Colonel Rowling, rated her one, uh, first out of the 33 lieutenants. That, that we had, and uh, after we deployed to Sofia, Iraq, she was killed um, while leading her platoon. After having led her platoon on a successful mission to bring barrier materials to combat outposts, she was killed by an ID. And it was it was really sad for me, but I I really appreciated that my battalion commander, brigade commander, everybody was there for for me and for Tracy's family. And I really I really came to appreciate. Um, that her whole community was there for, and, and nothing, nothing can make me, um, nothing made, is capable of making me angrier than groups like Westboro Baptist Church that you know protest a funeral with signs saying "Thank God for IDs," "Thank God," you know, whoever whoever died is dead. Um, um, and fortunately, that's a small part of our society now, and we've got. Yeah, it's not big, but I, I really like that, the part in the play that said, uh, for while Ajax lived, there was no greater man on the earth. And, and that's how I, not just I, but all Tracy soldiers felt about Tracy. And I just want to say how much I appreciate um, all of you just for, for having work, working here in the Department of Defense and, and groups such as yourself that uh, does this for soldiers and supports them. And a woman who works at Bethesda, currently Director of Training and Combat Trauma Specialist, who helps the current wounded and lost a husband in an earlier war. I couldn't imagine living without. Chuck Mesa talks about, I will not live when you are dead. And I think that reaction is universal, but I did. And it's been a process. I had someone say to me early on, your grief will turn to grace. And if it hadn't been a nun, I would have slept. <laughs> but it truly was a nun because it, it was, you know, so what am I going to do? You know, but I can tell you that that, uh, that kind of tremendous helplessness and the tremendous emotions that wash over you Eventually, I could get to uh, being angry with him because he had suffered frostbite in training, survival training in Washington State. I guess in those days, if you went to Vietnam, it was a thing to go to a very cold area and do survival training. So there's a sarcasm, too. Uh, <laughs> but he didn't have to go. He'd been given the option to wait. But how can you deny the other love of your love? And that was his warrior ethos and the importance of wearing your country's uniform and serving 
So let me come around a little bit now to full circle and looking at the pain. The pain which is always covered over by angry grief and in many different levels. And what I find in Ajax is uh, in that state of mind where he's in this amygdala, amygdala hijack where he can't really access his reasonable thoughts. To him, it's perfectly reasonable who had the power of life and taking life. That the most honorable way for him to manage his own personal moral injury is to go ahead and use death as a cleansing ritual because that's what he decides to do. And even in that state, who is he thinking about? He's thinking about his son. He gives a charge to his son. He does think about his wife. He wants to protect her. Stay behind the gates, he tells her. And his family, as all families do, go through a tremendous state of transition with this life passage. But what really emerges is a tremendous courage that looks through that death and through that grief and brings really a philosophical mind, a way of deeply understanding the circumstances. And Odysseus, who truly is an honorable person, who has integrity, an important warrior quality, actually honors and sees to it that he is forever remembered as the great warrior that he truly was. There is a necessity of fate in our lives, and I don't think we can absolutely ever manage that. And, uh, you know, I keep reading over and over again uh, Victor Frankl's um, book on um, the meaning of man's search for meaning. And I think that leads me uh, as to this natural place of eventually acceptance. But I've been very fortunate professionally because every day that I can work and that I can do something to resolve the cost of war, even in a small way, my husband is a Mr. Dorries asked them at the beginning of the reading to remember lines of the play that were important to them. The wife has something to say. One of the things, too, that I really um, appreciated, though, was the change that Odysseus made at the end. That I think he, as a fellow warrior, could admire the greatness of Ajax because he had walked a similar road. Um, that in the end, I think sometimes, is as well-meaning as civilians can be sometimes, um, there's a, a brotherhood among warriors that I think only one, someone that's been through what that individual has been through can really appreciate. Um, and I know there were people that my husband didn't particularly care for and vice versa um, when he was in the service who came out of the woodwork after he got injured. And um, even another, there was an officer who had um, barely known my husband 
as was due to their battalion after Ted got injured. Um, and later on, a year later, when they were deployed again, Ted was having some difficulties and was hospitalized. It was interesting that this man came back around and said to me, I didn't really know your husband, but I could judge what kind of person he was by the way what happened to him affected the unit and how he saw that, that um, change the unit. So um, I was proud of what he said. She's proud of Odysseus. He honors the man, the man that once lived, not caring if it was his enemy or not. And he has come to honor what the man was in life. Now that I know wasn't the same one because the events that I'm going to talk about hadn't occurred yet. Uh, and so I think that's an interesting part of this process too. Um, you know, as I heard uh, scene one, uh, or act one, I guess, uh, the first thoughts that I had were, uh, Athena, where were you November of last year when one of our own, um, either because of madness or because of anger or because of we don't know what, uh, slaughtered our own? Where was Athena to intervene and maybe have that person kill some animals? And No, that didn't happen. Um, we had an event where one of our folks... Uh, descended in some way, and, and we're still feeling the consequences of that now. Um, I was uh, struck uh, later in, in the play uh, by the words of, of uh, Ajax's uh, stepbrother when he, when he starts to think about what's going to happen to him because of this. And he starts to think about you know, what his father's reaction is going to be uh, when it all sinks in, what vile worlds were not crossed his lips as he slings them in my direction. His brother, who was nowhere on the scene when this occurred, is worried about how his father, how others are going to perceive him and his role in this. And, and, uh, and he goes on to talk about the horrible things. And I'm struck by also this question throughout the play of, you know, who's mad and who isn't? Uh, you know, Ajax, we see that he was visited presumably by, by Athena and, and that made him transiently uh, bad enough to kill animals under delusional state. What, what if he killed his own guys? What if she hadn't intervened? Would we have called him mad? He killed his own generals. Uh, what about the guy at the end, uh, the four star, who shows up and starts blaming his brother for wanting to bury his son? Is there not madness there? Um, so, and if it isn't madness, what is it? Uh, so I'm... I'm currently overwhelmed with the way that it, uh, the play reflects some of the, the, the overall madness of, of, of war and these overall questions of uh, when something horrible happens, who should be blamed? Here's all you need to know. Well, it's not all you need to know. There is a wealth of information on the news. On November 5, 2009, a mass shooting took place at Fort Hood, killing 13 people and wounding 30 others. The accused perpetrator is Naidal Malik Hassan, an army psychiatrist who killed others on perceived slights. Well, I speak too soon. The trial is not taking place, and the motive must be weighed by a jury. However, 
The actions that Hassan reportedly carried out was what Ajax wanted to do. He wanted to slaughter his generals, and Hassan slaughtered his fellow soldiers in a medical facility that he actually worked. I am disconnected to Ajax by thousands of years, and to be honest, I can be more forgiving to the warrior Ajax than I can to Hassan. The colonel wonders where Athena was on that day, and so do I. This leaves the question, why did Sophocles write this play? I'm um, studying to be a couple and family therapist at the University of Maryland and just about to finish my master's. Um, this is like group therapy. That's what this play is. And that's, that's why he wrote it, because it gives you a metaphor to talk about things. It gives you a language to speak things that are unspeakable, which is something that happens in therapy. It gives you this space to be intimate and to... Um, uncover and dig and ultimately when you do that you hit family um, we all come from family and the experiences that you have growing up and, and whatnot um, shape your interpretation so to me it's this was like you know 1400 I don't know how many people sat in the, in the original theater that was just an awfully huge group therapy session but I you know it, it gives you a way to go home and, and um, talk to your wife or talk to your kids and that's what's important to me Thank you. You know, um, I, I'm very careful not to call this therapy because I'm just a theater director and a translator. True, you shouldn't um, do that. <laughs> so I would never say that out loud myself, but I do see it as a public health initiative and an awareness campaign and an opening of a door. And, and, and then our other objective working with DECO is to connect those who come to our performances with resources. So we have in every place we go a table full of them. We have the providers in the area come. There was a performance at Fort Riley where we had 100 providers in the local community and 100 soldiers from the 2nd uh, Battalion. And the commanding general, um, Vincent Brooks, had the soldiers stand up first and they were applauded. And then the providers who were sitting all amongst them stand up and they were applauded. And sometimes we're just a pretext to bring those two communities together in a, in a more permissive and safe way. Um, not to get too academic, but we are an academic institution. Um, uh, I was saying to some of the panelists earlier, in the ancient world, the antibiotics of the ancient world um, was song. Um, singing was actually a form of therapy for all kinds of ailments. And the Greeks made no distinction between psychosocial, spiritual, physical, the way we do now. But it's not coincidental that when these plays were performed, uh, it was concurrent with the formalization of medical practice itself. It's also not incoincidental that they have all kinds of medical themes in them. Um, you know, Sophocles was a general. He was also a chaplain. He was a priest. Uh, and in the Greek, Greek word iatros, it also means doctor. Um, he was a physician to a certain extent. And uh, the very uh, place where uh, one went to be healed in Greece in the 5th century was the, the Temple of Asclepius. And you have here, I'm happy to see the right uh, staff with the one snake going around it, which is the right symbol for medicine. The other one is actually was not the right symbol, but um, that, that got appropriated somehow along with the two, two snakes. That's the staff of Asclepius. It's on the motto outside. And um, the sacred snake. And uh, so the very temple of Asclepius where people came to be healed in the 5th century was on the perimeter of the theater itself. Uh, you could see into the, the clinic from the theater and into the theater from the clinic. And there are even plays that reference the temple of Asclepius where it's clear they're being topically referenced. So I, I would just go on to say, I mean, since I'm weaving this together, and there are people who've said this before me, so it's not my original thought, but 
the notion that ancient theater was a way of healing the entire city. I would agree with that. Um, and that uh, we've made a lot of advancements in our medicine, um, but the place where we need to advance more rapidly and catch up with our technological advances have to do with these very intuitive medicines that the Greeks seem to have tapped uh, 2,500 years ago. The theater war can be found on the web at www.theater-of-war.com. Let's take a break and listen to some music. When we get back, let's take another book off the shelf.
You have been listening to Ancient Rome Refocused. And now for the next exciting segment with your host, Rob Kane. Achilles in Vietnam has the subtitle of Combat Trauma and the Undoing of Character. It was written by Jonathan Shea, MD, PhD. The book today fits exactly into the subject of our podcast, and after reading it, all I could think was, nothing really changes. The title, Achilles in Vietnam, is a perfect title. Achilles, the perfect warrior, the best above all the Archean host, in an imperfect war, as if any war is perfect. It is a scholarly work. He takes Homer's Iliad, breaks it up, and makes vivid comparisons. Why the Iliad? Well, the Iliad in ancient times was read with as much reference as the Bible is read today. The best depiction I saw of this was in the movie Alexander with Richard Burton. There's a short scene, oh, five or six seconds at the most, where Alexander reads Homer to his friends, and they all sit there with their faces set in rapt attention. Homer was a great poet. Shea is a great one as well in the way he takes its poetry and prose to weave it in with the hard realities of war. I can't tell if Homer makes his book poetic or Shea's ability to tie it all together. Poetry, psychology, and the horror of war is threaded throughout this book. Shea shows the acceptability of grief in ancient armies and its healing properties, and the modern army's tendency to encourage displays of emotion to be stowed away, like placing a piece of equipment away for storage. Homer's warriors at Troy considered tears intrinsic to the dignity of the dead and the living as well. Remember, this was the age of professional grievers. Yes, people made money in tearing their clothing, crying, and looking at the heavens and asking why. Well, it helps to deal with death. Why not? Soldiers, no matter what the time and place, feel guilt. Quote, When he needed me, I wasn't there. I should have took the round myself, a sergeant says in grief. From the Iliad, there are words f- similar to this. Quote, I could not help my friend in his extremity. He needed me to shield him and parry the stroke. End quote. I ask you then, what has changed? Achilles in Vietnam tells of a veteran being struck in the flesh of his upper arm by a spent fifty caliber machine gun bullet. The fifty cal is a heavy, high-velocity bullet, which is lethal at 3,000 to 4,000 yards. The bullet projected from his skin, and he simply pulled it out and had it dressed by a medic who simply slapped on a field dressing. The Iliad says this, quote, At the behest of Athena, Pandorus got off an arrow at Menelaus. It penetrated his skin only superficially, with the barb still inside. The surgeon Macron simply pulled it out and dressed the wound. End quote. In addition to counts of the of battles, the Iliad tells of the comradeship between warriors. The battle buddy existed then and it still exists today. The language in modern parlance is hard and unpoetic. Quote, you take a shit and he'd be right there covering you. And if I took a shit... He's covering me. End quote. It's not poetry, but it's true. Shea's book is an account of battle in ancient time and the time of Vietnam. It makes continuous comparisons of the psychological hardships that warriors had to suffer in both times and both eras. It is 27 centuries that separates both generations, and it seems only a night has passed. Let's face it, our Achilles in Vietnam is not light reading. It's not entertainment. It is the study of generations and the social phenomenon of war. It uses the knowledge of the present 
actual accounts of war taken from direct testimony from those that walked the battlefields of Vietnam and the accounts of Homer, one of the few references to the ancient war of Troy, to make comparisons. In fact, it's better than using accounts of an historian. A historian will talk of nothing of battle and, and the grand movement of armies, but a poet. A poet talks of emotions and the state of man. I want to do a shout out to my buddy Kareem in Scotland. Thanks for listening and please feel free to give me any hints on what you think I should be on the show. I want to let Debbie of London to know that I'm working on that episode about women in the ancient world. I want to combine this with a review of the movie Agora starring uh, Rachel Weisz. I know it, it, it's shown up in California in some of the theaters, but I'm still looking for a theater in my local area. An episode on women in the ancient world will be on season two of Ancient Rome Refocused after I complete the openings episode, which will be on Cleopatra. I got an email from Micah Plymouth, Plymouth, Massachusetts, that is, who gave me an idea. He wrote, Do you think you could do a future show on what it would like to be an emperor, perhaps looking at some of the tough decisions that must be made? Well, that's the end of his quote. Well, this was followed up by a phone call. Hi, my name is Ryan Feinberg. Uh, you might know me as on the Facebook screen name as Odin's son, as I just joined the Ancient Rome Refocus group there. I love the podcast. I enjoy it very much. Uh, I was just calling to say that I just got done reading the book Augustus by Anthony Everett. It details the uh, it's a biography of Augustus, and it also details how Rome went from a republic to an empire. And I was a little curious if a future episode at any point would be dedicated to uh, the transitioning period that Rome went through during that time. And that's it. I just want to say keep up the good work. I appreciate the show, and thanks. Well, I think it's a great idea. So I've taken Mike and Odin's son's advice and decided to make season one's final episode for Ancient Roman Focused to be on the Emperors. Podcast six will be titled, I Am the Emperor and You're Not. Stay tuned. And special thanks to Anna's the Man podcast for the review of the show. You can read the review on my blog site or go and explore his website at http colon forward slash forward slash annasaman.blog.com. Anna's the Man podcast reviews pods and plogs from around the world. Anna is a Frisian name from Holland. He lives in Israel with his wife and is, from what I can tell, nothing short of a renaissance man combining a love of history and computers. Check it out. Well, this ends another show. Stay in touch on Facebook and please, please, please leave some comments on the blog and phone in. Let me know what interests you. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused. <laughs>